Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am continuing in Matthew 13 in this audio. We're taking up several parables that Jesus spoke from a boat in the Sea of Galilee off the coast near Capernaum. Verse 44 says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. I'm going to start out with the easy part first, which is, what is the meaning of this parable? It's very simple. The kingdom of heaven is so great that you will do anything. You will give up anything. You will sell everything you got. And you go out and you'll get the kingdom of God. That's the meaning of this parable, which is the same meaning as the next parable, which is the pearl of great price. The kingdom is of such value that one should be willing to give up all he has to get it. Now let's look at some of the details of the parable. There was a treasure buried in the field that a man found and reburied. And then he bought the field. Now the question might arise, was this man acting ethically? He finds a treasure and then he buries it again and goes and buys the field without telling the owner of the field that there's a treasure in it. You could say that that is not ethical. First of all, what if it was? What if the treasure belonged to the man who sold the field and he lost it, lost track of it, and then you go out and buy that field and get the treasure back from him? Well, legally, in our system of laws, that if you find a treasure in a field, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the true owner of the treasure, and you are considered a bailee, And you were supposed to keep that treasure in trust for the true owner until such time as he can be found. Well, all that's well and good. We can talk about legalities and ethics of what he did, but remember, that's not the point of a parable. The The point of a parable is the main point of the parable. After all, God himself was compared to an unjust judge in one of the other parables, and we don't then take that detail and say, see there, God is unjust. We don't do that. So that's that's not what the point is. Some people say that, the treasure is a gold or a silver mine, and of course then the question comes in, is, well, how does the man rebury a gold or silver mine? Uh, well, the NIV says the man found not the treasure and reburied it, but the man hid it again, meaning hid the treasure again. And therefore you could you could say that he hid the secret of the gold mine. Well, I don't know. I think it's easier just to say it's a treasure. Now, buying the field is not mean, of course, that Jesus is implying that the kingdom can be bought with money or with good deeds. Of course not. Now, it's interesting that according to the NIV study Bible, in ancient times it was a common practice to bury money in a field because there were no banks. Even though there were bankers, Matthew 25:27 says this in another parable, you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and when I returned, I would have received my money back with interest. So there were bankers, but there were no institutional banks, and so people oftentimes buried their money in a field. I know a story of my great aunt who lived next to uh, Wade Hampton's uh, mansion, a former mansion. Wade Hampton was, uh, the earlier Wade Hampton was one of the richest men in, colonial, men in colonial America, and Wade Hampton was a famous Civil War general and a governor of South Carolina, and he, because the Yankees were coming, had buried a big block of gold in his yard, and my aunt's husband, my great aunt's husband, dug it up. Well, whose gold was that? It's an interesting legal question, which I won't get into here. So we will notice here that uh, the the this is kind of like a what I would say a Calvinist parable because the man stumbled on the treasure without seeking it. In other words, we don't seek him first; he finds us. Of course, the next parable, the merchant was in search of fine pearls, and he did look. And so that's kind of like an Arminian parable, if you want to get into that kind of absurdity. Matthew 13, verses 45 through 46. 
Another parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went in and sold everything he had and bought it. Same, he did the same thing that the man with the treasure in the field did. Sold everything he had. He sold out for Jesus to put it in the common parlance. And so the meaning is the same as the parable of the buried treasure. We now go turn to a third parable, another parable. Matthew 13, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish. We can call this the parable of the dragnet. It teaches the same thing as the parable of the wheat and tares, which is you cannot separate out good fish from bad fish when you're fishing. You're going to throw the net in there, and you're going to get both kinds, the good ones and the bad ones, the ones you can eat and the ones you can't eat. So don't try to go down into the ocean and separate the fish out before you catch them. You've got to wait until God does the separation. The final separation of the righteous and the wicked is not up to us, but it's up to the Lord. The sea here symbolizes the world, as it often does in the Old Testament. Now, some people could interpret this parable as saying this, that the preaching of the gospel collects all kinds of people, like the net collects all kinds of fish, and therefore it collects hypocrites as well as true believers, so therefore we shouldn't try to separate them out. And again, that kind of interpretation cuts against church discipline in the same way that people use the parable of the weeds. They say the weeds are in the church, despite the fact that Jesus said the weeds were the that the land that the weeds were in is the, is the world, not the church, but people interpret it as that being the church. You're supposed to leave those weeds in the church until the final judgment or until AD 70, uh, depending on how you interpret the, the uh, fire that's coming. Well, the problem with that is Jesus tells us we do church discipline, and Paul told the Corinthians to do church discipline with a man who was sleeping with his stepmother. So that's a misuse of the, of the parable, in my opinion, and I think this is a, like, a similar misuse of this parable to say that because we catch all kinds of fish and some of those fish are bad, we can't separate them out, and we just leave them in the net. We don't do church discipline. I think that's not good. Matthew chapter 13, verses 48 through 50. And when it, that means the dragnet, was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. And so here's the separation of the good from the bad. That happens at the end of the age, not while you're fishing. Not, And, of course, the application is not while we are in this world do we try to separate out the good from the evil. And, again, I think he's talking about AD 70 when he's talking about fighting back against the Jewish persecutors of the church. But he, however you take it. You could also, if you applied it to the end of the age, you could then say, okay, well, then Jesus is telling them don't get involved, him, his disciples, and their descendants. Don't get involved in Christian revolutions, military actions, and so forth, trying to purge the earth of evil. It's not going to work. The purging has to be done as a gradual leavening, as in the parable of the mustard seed, with people getting converted and their hard hearts being changed, and then we'll get a new world a better world, and these people who think they can have a political or military revolution and bring about peace on earth and goodwill for men, they're fools. Or at the end of the age, the angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace. Of course, the blazing furnace is a symbol of hell, or it could be the symbol of Rome, which was burning in AD 70. Either way, the good people are saved, the bad people are destroyed. In that place, in this blazing furnace, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice that there are angels involved in this separation, just like in the parable of the wheat and tares, and just like in Matthew 24, where Jesus comes uh, with his angels, with his myriad of angels. And notice in verse 49, 
the Holman Christian Study Bible says, so it will be at the end of the age. The King James says, so it will be at the end of the world. Now, how you translate that word, of course, determines whether this parable should be interpreted, more likely, is more likely to be interpreted to mean at the end of the world, at the end of time, at the last judgment, or does it mean at the end of the Jewish age in AD 70? The proper translation is age, so that tends to make me think that it's 80-70. Matthew 13, verses 51 through 52. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked the disciples. Yes, they told him. Therefore, he said to them, Every student of Scripture instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who brings out of his storeroom what is new and what is old. Now, some people say this is the eighth parable of the boat. Some people just say this is a, just a metaphor that Jesus brought up. It doesn't really matter. You notice that he says, have you understood all these things? He's like a good teacher. That's the last thing you ask. Did you understand what I'm saying? Of course, then you could say, well, then repeat it back to me. He doesn't say he did that here. But he asked them that, and he's referring to all these things. He means all of those seven or eight parables he taught out of the boat. Now, to their credit, they say, yeah, they told him. Now, they had to be instructed a little bit. They had to ask some questions privately on the last three, four parables, the last uh, three or four parables when they privately asked Jesus what exactly did you mean? But they did ask, and they understood, and so they were, they were doing good. Now, Jesus was impressing on their minds how important the parables were. That's why he asked them, have you understood all these things? I want you to understand this. This is important. They might have been slow, but they eventually understood with some help from Jesus. They were good students. Now, what does this mean? What did Jesus mean here when he said, every student of Scripture instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like a landholder who brings out of his storeroom what is new and what is old? Well, that's not exactly clear. Here are three options. First, from Adam Clark. What is new and what is old is a Jewish phrase for a great plenty. In other words, if you are instructed in the kingdom of heaven, then you will be able to bring forth from your store of scriptural knowledge a great plenty in order to teach the, your converts into the kingdom of heaven. That makes sense to me. I don't know if he's right or not, but it does make sense. Adam Clark also suggests that it could refer to knowledge of the old and new covenants. So, in other words, those who are st instructed in Scripture will understand that there's things in the Old Covenant, the Scripture that they had there, and then also things that are new that had not been written yet and had not come yet. And so Jesus is telling them, look, the Old and the New. Now, if, we, if this is the interpretation, this one what Andy Stanley thinks about unhitching the Old Testament from the New. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown suggest that what is new and what is old refers to old truths in every new forms, aspects, applications, and with every new illustrations. In other words, taking old truths and making them, dressing them up a little bit, coming up with new ways of presenting the old truth. Eh, maybe so. I'm not sure what I think that means. Well, there's three good options. Now, the, who's the they? Yes, they told him. That's the disciples. That's the twelve alone. Remember, they're, private, they're alone now in the house at Capernaum. Simon Peter and Andrew's house, and so they heard this privately. Notice how Jesus here refers to every student of Scripture instructed in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus expected his apostles to be instructed, and he expected them to be students of Scripture. There is no false dichotomy here between relying on the Holy Spirit as opposed to relying on the Scripture, or relying on the Scripture as opposed to relying on the Holy Spirit. This false economy is everywhere in the modern church. There's nothing wrong, folks. I mean, in fact, it's required, folks. You want to be a minister of the gospel? You want to be like these apostles were to go out into the world? You need to be a student of Scripture. And why do you study the Scripture? 
so you can be instructed in the kingdom of heaven, so that you can bring forth out of your storeroom that which is new and that which is old, and that you can you can be an instrument in the healing of the nations. Let's go to Matthew 13, verses 53 through 54. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. That's Capernaum. He left Capernaum. He went to his hometown, that's Nazareth, and began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, how did this wisdom and these miracles come to him? Now, first of all, we need to point out that there's a problem in harmonization, and these problems can be very difficult and controversial. Some people say that Jesus went to Nazareth twice. Some people say he went once. I'm not going to take a stand on that because I don't know. I really don't care, actually. But we did have him going to Nazareth once on his way up to Capernaum in Matthew. And so I'm just going to assume that this is the second time he went back to Nazareth. And by the way, even though it says his hometown, not everybody agrees with that it's Nazareth. Adam Clark says it's probably Nazareth. NIV Study Bible says it's definitely Nazareth. Well, okay, we'll, we'll say it's Nazareth. So he went back to Nazareth and began to teach in the synagogue. Now, it was the Sabbath day. We learned from our detailed man, Mark, in chapter 6, that said he was teaching in the Sabbath in Nazareth. Now... The people in the synagogue listened to him teach, and they said, my gosh, how did he get this wisdom and these miracles? Now, I want to point this out, that why was Jesus so noteworthy back then? Why did people flock to him? It was for two reasons. One for his teaching, and one for his miracles. Now, crypto-deist cessationists like, like Bill, Phil Johnson and John MacArthur and people like that and Todd Friel and Al Mohler, they constantly say, say, the people went chasing after the healings. They weren't listening to the teaching. That is not so, and it's demonstrably not so. You can look at Luke chapter 5, for example. They came for the teaching, and they came for the miracles. And here, the people in, in Nazareth no, noted that it was for Jesus' teaching, his wisdom, as well as his miracles that he came to him. So that is a false dichotomy spread by cessationists who seem to think that healing by doctors is the only good kind of healing there is. All right, so why did they think that Jesus had wisdom? Jesus taught with grace. He taught with power. He taught with authority. People in Nazareth knew that Jesus had not been to a theological school and had never been mentored by lettered doctors. And he was just teaching like he was the greatest rabbi of them all. He didn't appeal to authority. You know, ancient, this ancient rabbi said this and this ancient rabbi said this. Jesus said, I say this because he was God. And they were, the crowd was astonished. They had not heard of Jesus' exploits before this, apparently, until he spoke in the synagogue. This was a local hometown boy, showed up, who's this guy? Talking like this and doing all these miracles. Apparently, Jesus had lived in obscurity in Nazareth until then. For 30 years, he grew up in Nazareth, and nobody ever heard of him. It's kind of a cool hometown story. People in your hometown, I just saw an autobiography of John Steinbeck, world-famous American writer, his hometown in Salinas, California, they burned his books in front of the public library, and they wouldn't walk on the same side of the street with him after he became famous, and he had to move to New York. So this is an old story. Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 through 56. The people of Nazareth, having heard Jesus in the synagogue, they say this, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where did he get all these things? Now, this is a put-down. It's a put-down as well as a, 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 an expression of astonishment. Isn't this the carpenter's son? In other words, a carpenter is not going to have a son who's a great rabbi and who could do a bunch of miracles. That just doesn't happen. Carpenters are just simple people. They're lower-class people. They don't, they don't produce great rabbis. 
And then they say, isn't his mother called Mary? His brother James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. In other words, they knew the family, and they were just ordinary folks. And how in the world could an ordinary carpenter's family produce such a product as Jesus? And his sisters, they knew his sisters too. Aren't they all with us? In other words, we know these people. Well, apparently Joseph is dead now. He said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Uh, the NIV study Bible says he's apparently dead, and John Gill says he's very probably dead. I'm not sure how they know that. Uh, Mary, notice that this is the Virgin Mary here, and John Gill describes her as this, plain Mary without any other title or civil respect, a poor spinstress that got her bread by her hand labor. The Jews say she was a plater of women's hair and treat her with the utmost scorn. As, of course, the Jews would treat the mother of, of Jesus with scorn. Well, she's not so infamous and she's not so low class now. Everybody in the world knows who she is. Now, who are these brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Now, there's one thing that will get one bogged down very, very quickly is trying to figure out, A, who the twelve disciples were, and B, who the brothers of Jesus were. Because the Jews had this unfortunate habit of calling everybody by their first name. And you can't distinguish them out. So I'm going to give you what I think is who is who, knowing that this is all speculation nobody really knows. First of all, let's, these four, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, they're called brothers here. Well, let's, there are four options as to who they actually were, what their actual relationship was to Jesus. Here's option number one. They could have been sons of Joseph by a former wife. This would make them Jesus' stepbrother. Option number two. They were sons of Mary by a husband, a, a former husband of Mary. I doubt that very seriously, but that is a, a logical possibility, in which case the sons would be stepbrothers also, except by Mary rather than by Joseph. Or they could be Joseph's nephews because of an ancient custom in the East where the Jews often call their cousins brother. Now, I really am not surprised at this because I lived in China and I, for 23 years, and I cannot tell you how many times I ask people about their brother and they tell me about their cousins. Yeah, I've got five brothers. And I would say, I thought there was a one-child policy in China. How can you have five brothers? Oh, I mean my cousins. This is, people, this is Chinese people speaking English. And they were constantly confused brethren with cousins. So apparently the Jews did the same thing. And then, of course, the fourth option is they are sons of Joseph and Mary, which would make them Jesus' blood half-brothers. Well, now, why does it matter? Well, because the Catholics have got this unfortunate doctrine that says that Mary was perpetually virgin. And if she was perpetually virgin, then option number four can't be true. These four brothers or slash nephews here, or cousins here, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, they can't be Mary's children because she's supposed to be perpetually virgin. Well, let's just take that argument first real quick. Here's the argument. It is unlikely that they are blood children of Joseph and Mary, according to the Catholics, because when Jesus, dying on the cross, he commended his mother to John, not to his blood brothers. So therefore, he must not have had blood brothers. They must have been stepbrothers or somebody else, or nephews. So goes the Catholic argument. Well, I don't think that argument's very strong, because oftentimes you will, you will entrust people to your spiritual brethren before you do to your blood brothers. Some of Jesus' blood brothers didn't even believe in him. So why would he not entrust his mother to his his beloved disciple John? You know, the one that leaned on him at the Last Supper, the beloved disciple. Why would he not entrust Mary to John? Why does this prove that Jesus didn't have any blood brothers? So I think that's uh, that's not going to do. All right, well, how about the option that that the sons of these are the sons of Joseph by a former wife, Jesus' stepbrothers? 
Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this is unlikely, and I think his logic is pretty good, and it's backed up by Adam Clark, who says this, Why should the children of another family, as, as stepbrothers, by Joseph's pre, so alleged previous wife, why should the children of another family be brought in here to share a reproach when it, which is evident was designed for Joseph the carpenter, Mary, his wife, and Jesus, their son? And, of course, their other children. It was talking about the family of Joseph and Mary and Jesus here. Why bring in stepbrothers? Prejudice apart, Clark continues, would not any person of plain common sense suppose from this account that these were the children of Joseph and Mary and the brothers and sisters of our Lord according to the flesh? Hear, hear. Seems to me that's exactly what it is. It seems odd that this should be doubted, but through an unaccountable prejudice, papists and Protestants are determined to maintain as a doctrine that on which the scriptures are totally silent, viz. the perpetual virginity of the mother of our Lord. Well, that's the best you can say about that doctrine, the perpetual virginity of Mary. The scriptures are silent on it. And the worst you can say is it doesn't make any sense. The, lo the logic is that the Nazarenes were complaining about Jesus' blood family here. Now let's look at who these guys potentially were. Let's talk, start with James. Most probably this is the same James that ended up being one of the pillar apostles along with Peter and John. The, one of the pillar apostles at the Church of Jerusalem, also called James the Just, and he was extraordinarily holy and pious according to church history. I think I read somewhere that he had calluses on his knees from praying so much. I might be remembering that wrong, but he was extremely devoted guy. Now, this is assumed that this is James the Just. Some people say it's James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the 12 apostles. Nobody knows, but most people, I think, say it's James the Just, the leader in the church of Jerusalem. Then we have Joseph. Some people like, he's mostly unknown, but this brother of Jesus named Joseph, some people say he was the failed nominee for the replacement of Judas Iscariot, when the apostles in Acts 1 had to nominate and elect a successor to Judas in Acts 1.23, they proposed to Joseph, called Bersabbaths, who was also named as Justice. He lost the election, Matthias won, so he didn't get chosen. Well, who knows? You know, we'll just say that Joseph, the brother of Jesus, is unknown. And how about Simon, the brother of Jesus? Well, Simon, there was a Simon the Zealot who was one of the apostles. But Jameson Fawcett Brown says, no, this Simon is not Simon the Zealot. So who knows? And then there's Judas. Now, this is also probably the same apostle that's called Thaddeus in Matthew 10 and the other parallels he's called Judas. We don't know if it's the same Judas that was one of the apostles. We also don't know whether he's the same Judas that wrote the book of Jude. And in fact, was it the apostle Jude that wrote the book of Jude, that's, we'll leave that to the PhDs in New Testament scholarship. I don't know. Doesn't matter. I tend to think he, that this Jude was the guy that wrote the book of Jude, but we don't know. So I just want to leave you this. I remember there was a book called In Search of the Twelve Apostles. I said, you know, I'd like to know who those twelve apostles are. And I think I can name them now, maybe. But that book went for three or four hundred pages. When I finished reading that book, I said, this is a waste of time. Nobody knows who those 12 are. There's too much controversy. I mean, it's amazing how much has been written about it. A lot of writing with no clear, clear results. Now, let's leave this verse here, verse 55, where the people of Nazarene say, Isn't his mother called Mary? 
What tone should was that said in? It was probably an insulting tone, as I mentioned earlier. This is just a carpenter. My gosh, how could, he, how could this guy come from such a low-class person? Adam Clark agrees with that, says their tone was insulting. Matthew 13, verse 57, and they were offended by him. Ah, great wisdom. Wisdom of the ages, teaching for the ages, miracles, all kinds of stuff. And how do they react? They're offended. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. That's where a prophet, he gets honor everywhere but not in his hometown. He gets honor everywhere but not in his household. This is just like John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck was not honored in Salinas, not until after he died and they built a $10 million museum for him. He was not honored in his household because his two, he hated his first two wives, or they hated him. They were, crack, they were not pleasant people. So this is kind of human nature, and Jesus appeals to that. So he say, yeah, you know, why did they not respect Jesus for what he was doing now? Because they could look at Jesus through two lenses. The first lens was local hometown boy, carpenter. That's how they knew him all their life, and him, him and his family. That's how, knew, how they knew him and his family. And all of a sudden, in a different aspect, they couldn't adjust their lenses to see this guy as the Messiah. They just couldn't see it. Here's what Clark, quoting another guy, says, A man, generally speaking, can do but little good among his relatives because it is difficult for them to look with the eyes of faith upon whom they have been accustomed to behold with the eyes of the flesh. In other words, your household has watched you grow up and be a stupid, idiotic, prepubescent teenager and then be an even more stupid, idiotic teenager and even a slightly less dumb cough early adult and then all of a sudden this person changes and he becomes something great it's just hard to make the adjustment Matthew chapter 13 verse 38 58 and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief he did a few Mark 6 5 says he was not able to do any miracles there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them I suspect they're the ones that showed that they believed in him but most of the people didn't believe so they didn't get healed you know that's that's their reward now, it says he couldn't do miracles. Well, well, it says he did not do many miracles. In Matthew and Mark, it says he was not able to do any miracles in the parallel passage. Not able? Does that mean Jesus couldn't do miracles? No, it just means he didn't want to do the miracles. That's what it means. It wasn't because of Jesus' lack of power. It was because of their unworthiness that he didn't do miracles. And if he did do more miracles, it would increase their condemnation because then he would, they would be sinning against a greater life. Light And Jesus, of course, did not cast his pearls before swine. Now, here's a good quote from the Armenian Adam Clark. Faith seems to put the almighty power of God into the hands of men, whereas unbelief appears to tie up even the hands of the almighty. I love it how Armenians like to talk about people tying up almighty hands. God, I mean, please. Oh, it pains me to have to quote that since I've used Clark so much and generally find him very helpful. It, it, saying that he, we can't do it because of the unbelief is just like, a millionaire being approached by a drunk in the street, and the drunk says, can you lend me some money to go buy some liquor? And the millionaire says, I can't do that. It doesn't mean he's not able financially to do it. It means I'm not going to contribute to your drunkenness. That's sort of the same idea there. That is the end of Matthew 13. We'll take up Matthew 14 next. I hope you enjoyed this audio.